Today on the DLC Drop Podcast, we have Marco Maru. He is the co-founder and COO of Xset, which is a new emerging esports organization. They're really doing innovative things from a lifestyle, music, and gaming perspective. He also has a tremendous career story as starting out as an attorney, getting his foot in the door in the esports industry that way, and has been an entrepreneur in a number of different companies throughout gaming. I'm really excited for you to watch this episode. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, Marco Maru, thank you so much for joining me on the DLC Drop Podcast. It's super exciting to have you. I've been a fan of XSET ever since you guys started. You've had a lot of announcements, people joining the org and what you guys are doing. So excited to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, man. So to start off for our audience, why don't you take us back to the beginning of your journey? From what I understand, you were an attorney for 10 years. So if you want to start there, if you want to start even further back, tell us how you got started. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, to go even farther back, I mean, I've really been involved in gaming almost my entire life, you know, as a fan. That's a very passionate area for me, something I've been involved with at every stage of my, my, my growth as a person, right? So you know, really quickly grew up in South Florida, grew up in Miami, moved to Boston in the early 90s to go to to go to Northeastern University, ended up going to law school up here. And as you mentioned, I, you know, ended up becoming an attorney and, and practicing law for about 10 years in the Boston area. So how is Boston from a an esports standpoint? I know the, the Boston Uprising have an Overwatch League team there, but is is there yeah. much of a, a presence up there? No, I mean, none of the teams really, you know, secured or like a Boston presence really bought into the Boston, like the culture of New England itself as a, as a region, right? So there's a couple of teams that have, have been from the area, around the area, but no one's really kind of tapped into the same type of, you know, real cultural following as the traditional sports teams up here. But, you know, for, for me, I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I could you know, talked more about the, the, the legal profession. I mean, I, I left, you know, I used to have a, a pretty active practice. I had a commanding practice, an intellectual property practice where I worked with a lot of startups, like in the MIT area, doing all types of different things. But, you know, I honestly, I, I just, I really recall coming into my office one day and just having a stack of files from real estate closings and looking at those and just being like, there's just no way I'm going to continue to do this anymore. It's just way too boring. So I, I gave my my staff six months severance that day and I just shut down my my office and I decided I was going to move to the game industry wow. full time, you know, and that was just something that I felt passionate that I wanted to do and it was the right time to do it for me. So I did that and I ended up, you know, my, my, the first job I ever had in the game industry was I was general counsel. So still technically a lawyer, but I was also running U.S. business operations for at the time, what was one of the biggest and most popular mobile game, browser-based games in the world, a game called Ebony that had a lot of past, I guess you could say press written about it for some of the things that they had been doing uh-huh. prior to me getting there. I came on along with a guy named Walt Yarborough, who is a, a, you know, a well-known um, game developer. And essentially, we worked with the Chinese counterpart team to develop what was really the biggest browser-based game in the world, had over 40 million players. It was a, a hugely successful game. It was the game that really gave rise to a lot of games like Kingdoms of Camelot and, and games that companies like Kabam built entire you know corporations um, around. Yeah. So... So it was a, you know, it was, it was a good experience. I was there for about four years and, you know, we had a lot of, 
interesting things happen uh, when you're running a, a major worldwide game like that for a Chinese organization. You know, we dealt with everything from hackers to publicists in other countries that were saying things about the game. And, and it was just a, it was a very tumultuous journey for me. Yeah. Um, but it was great to get to work with a game of that scale, both like from a financial perspective, as well as the game itself. And, you know, after about four years, I realized that I, I wanted to go out and start my first company in gaming. I thought we could do it. And, I, you know, this was back in 2013. I felt like back then the value that a game publisher could bring to a game developer was a lot different than it was, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, right? It wasn't sure. as much about getting on a truck and going to GameStop anymore. It was about having someone who could help get you featured in the app store, help having someone that could help you understand how to monetize your game or, right. um, you know, do user acquisition for a mobile title. So I started at the time, which was one of the first mobile independent publishing labels called Gambler. And I think back then it was like us and Tilting Point were the first kind of organizations to do that. And what we did was we looked for and identify really high quality independent mobile titles that we could come on as a publisher and add value to and work with the developers so they could focus on making the game. And we would focus on the business functions with the outside of the game, getting the game featured, getting users into the title, you know, continuing to understand how to monetize it and grow the game for an indie developer. And when I think we did seven games in two years, we got seven, you know, we did eight games in two years. We got seven featured by Apple. And there were a couple of editors' choices in there as well. So we had, you know, really good relationship with the platforms. I remember meeting with Apple one year at GDC in my first year, and it was the head of the app, head of gaming in the app store. And I sat down with them and I just took a deep breath and I said, you know, you guys aren't really doing shit for indie games in the app store and you're leaving yep. a lot of high quality games on the ground and you, you need to, as a platform provider, you need to step up and do more and give those games a chance. And they were pretty, they didn't get up and leave and they were pretty responsive to that. And we started a good relationship with them and we, you know, we showed them the quality independent product games that were coming out. And they took the time to feature those titles and those titles are still well played and downloaded in the app store today. You know, games like Zengrams and Pathogen and Third Eye Crime and a number of others, right? So that was a great experience. It wasn't a venture class business, really. It was a publishing business, so uh -huh. it was profitable. But what we realized through that is that we needed to find a way to get users into our games other than paying, writing a big check to Facebook or Google, right? Right. So in 2015, we start. I started to do the first performance-based YouTuber influencer campaigns for my games where I would basically pay an influencer on YouTube to make a sponsored video about my title yeah. and I'd pay them per install with a download. And what we found was we got probably some of the best users for the game, the best LTV, the best longevity, the best retention rates. And one of my investors at that time said, if you put a little bit more money and time into that, I'll, I'll invest in that. So I ended up shifting from Gambler to a company that I started called Rooster. Uh -huh. um, and Rooster was, the, at the time, it was the first two-sided marketplace where mobile game publishers could do direct deals with any YouTube influencer cool. uh, to make a sponsored video about their game, right? So for mobile publishers, it gave them a way to measure performance on you know, influencer advertising for them. Yep. And for the YouTubers, it was a way to get offers without an MCN, without an agent. You could go into the marketplace and browse an offer and pick it up. You know, we had a lot of people back then that are very, you know, much, much bigger now. People like Sniper Wolf and Chief Pat and Nick at Night and Mold. A lot of these bigger YouTubers back then that only had a couple hundred thousand followers now have, you know, millions, if not tens of millions. Right. You know, we're on Rooster making money, making sponsored content. And it blew up very, very quickly. I sold that company 
in in 2015, in about eight months, to a company called Chartboost out of San Francisco. Okay. This was a mobile marketing company. So I sold uh, Rooster to Chartboost, went to Chartboost to run Rooster for them uh-huh. uh, for about a year. And, you know, that was a, a period in a time when mobile game, I felt like, was really stagnating, right? And the quality of titles that were out there were not... You weren't getting good titles fast and, and quick enough. I mean, if you look at the top 10 mobile games today, you probably is the same games as they were four or five years ago. You know, yeah. Clash of Clans, Candy Crush, all those titles. And, yeah. you know, it just got stagnated and and we didn't feel like it was a good fit anymore. So I left mm-hmm. at that point. Right. And then I, you know, I continued. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of running through all of these if that's what you want me to do. Yeah. But. No, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> we can go back and uh, pick out cool. specific things. I'm, I'm taking some notes to. Uh, yeah. A couple of things I have questions about, but loving it. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop in an accent. So, so after that, you know, I started a company uh, called eStars. Originally, it was called eStars, and eStars was supposed to be a, a masterclass for for gaming, where we were teaching players how to game. We built a platform, we built the engineering, we did everything uh, around that platform. We launched it. And I think within two days, we realized that the quality of stuff that people could get for free on YouTube was just as good, if not better, oh, wow. than anything yeah. that we could pay content creators to make. And that this was not the type of content that they needed or wanted. And at that time, we looked at social networks, especially short-form social video, as an area that um, nobody had really gone after aggressively to put out gaming content. So we moved the conversation from just Twitch and YouTube to Instagram and Instagram TV and TikTok and and shorter form video networks like that, where we felt that we could, we knew gamers were, we thought we could capture their attention. Yeah. And, you know, and then we, we, we you know, eStars became Framerate and Framerate became an esports and gaming content network, you know, on short form video networks, right? So that's how Framerate was born, ran that company for, you know, roughly about a year and a half, you know, built it from zero to 50 million views a month with a, a team of three people. Wow. And, uh, you know, and then we just, I think we really d- demonstrated that we, you know, we were doing more views on Instagram than, you know, companies like IGN or GameSpot or a lot of other major networks. And it was strictly because we understood what gamers wanted to watch at that time. And yeah, it was really gameplay highlights and, and clips and like the best plays of the day is what people really wanted to watch. So that's what we gave them. There's a lot to unpack there. Do you want to keep going to, to Xset or or you want to, I got a couple of questions to, yeah. to unpack right Why there. Yeah. Yeah, I could just finish up frame rate and then we could uh, jump on the questions, right? Yeah, like, you know, with frame uh, with frame rate, you know, we we ended up I ended up selling that company to Super League Gaming in 2019. Super League is a publicly traded company out of Santa Monica. Yep. And I went on there as an SVP to help them run frame rate and also help them with their content strategy internally at, the, at that company, right? And then stayed there for a little less than a year, and then and then we started down the path towards founding Exa. That's incredible. You know, a lot to unpack there. So my first question going back to your attorney days when you went then into the the mobile games industry, did you see that, okay, my experience as a lawyer can get me into this space because that is needed and so that's going to be my foothold or my, my, my foot in the door or was there some other strategy there? Personally. Yeah, no. So, I mean, that's exactly what I did. Is I recognized that my skill set that I had would be one that somebody in gaming would need to use at some some place or form, right? So, my when I was originally hired, you know, I was interviewed by this company on Skype at like one in the morning, right? So at first, yeah. I'm like, this is definitely totally sketchy. 
this is really weird and it's either going to go really really badly or it or it'll, i'll you know it'll work out well and i end up saying for four years but but yeah i mean i recognize that i could i could leverage my skill set as an attorney who understood gaming and and topics that were relevant to gaming like dmcas and intellectual property rights yeah um you know i was i was i was a general counsel in in every shape of the word so if there's something i need to understand i learned it on the job right but but yeah, I, I definitely use that to segue. And then once I was there, I got very involved on the game development and business side of the house. And I quickly became kind of the head of the US business side for 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 the game as well. So that I really shifted and you know got to the point where we actually had our own legal counsel and I shed as much of the legal work as I could sure. so that I could just focus on the business. I don't blame you. I think that's a that's a great example for our audience, especially younger viewers, is one thing that I love so much about, I have a big passion for educating high school and college kids on how to get into the industry. And it's so great that similar to traditional sports, you have all of these kind of normal skill sets that you can get an education or have experience in that then can be applied to the gaming and the esports industry. You just have to kind of understand those intricacies and how they apply directly. So I think that's a great it's a great lesson for younger people to say, hey, you don't have to do something that appears to be super specific to esports or gaming. You can have other general interests or expertise and those apply to this space. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I've talked to students all the time in the Boston area. I mean there's a, a million different things that you can do that to help you break into the industry. Right. I mean probably the most important is just hard work and like persevering and 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 finding the right space for you and demonstrating that you're a, a doer, right? And you get things done. Yep. But you know, with gaming, there's just so many avenues now, and it's such a big industry now that you know whether it's creative, technical, you know, performance based, like whatever it is, there's a lot of different ways you can you can move into the game industry. Absolutely. So when you went, so you start as a lawyer, then you're going more business. Did you have a business background in addition to your? general law practice or or did you kind of figure that out as you went well i think running my own practice for about 10 years was you know some business experience right so yeah so for me it's you know i i think i've almost always been self-employed in some way shape or form i was a bartender for eight years in law school and undergrad i mean i graduated my first job out of law school was running a business for a former judge who had a, a private mediation arbitration firm so i was my first job out of law school was a business focused job. I wasn't even practicing law. It was really, oh, I was just it. running this guy's business for him. And I did that for a few years before I went on to my own to start my own practice. But you know, it's it's something that you have to be passionate about and enjoy the process of, whether it's a big company like Exet or whether it's a small, you know, law practice like I had. Like you have to enjoy the journey of of taking something from a concept and a vision and an idea to an actual, you know, brand, a product, a, a company and developing that over time. Right. And would you say, because I know a lot of people know, we're, we're always talking about, oh, your passion and your your work. And, you know, I, I think 50 years ago, it was like, go to the coal mine, whether you like it or not, right? Nowadays, maybe because there's more choices. Would you say that you can grow to enjoy those things? Or like, okay, this is my job. And I kind of figure out a way to enjoy that if, if I didn't originally, or you think you just have to just go after what your kind of natural passion is there? You got, I mean, I really think you have to go after what you're passionate about. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a job that I felt like was a job, except for when I practiced law. Okay. Like that definitely felt like a job sometimes. But when I get up to work for Exet or when I used to get up to work for Gambler or the other companies that I've started, 
I love what I do. Like I'm having fun all day long. I'm building exciting, interesting things. We're doing innovative, you know, activations where, I mean, I have the best job in the world right now, right? I mean, who wouldn't yeah. want to run an esports team? So, you know, building the, whether it's building the rosters or, or doing the partnerships or, you know, hiring and, and seeing our team grow and, 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 and helping people up. So like, yeah, I mean, I, I love what I do. I never look at it as work at all. It's just something that I, I look forward to getting done. Yeah. So just, I, I guess younger people who are, you know, looking for that thing, just keep looking, right? I mean, sometimes I guess you have to have the job to pay the bills, but while you're doing that, you know, continue to look for opportunity, look for things kind of outside that nine to five to, to find a way you can pay your bills with that passion. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely a, a big fan of following your passion into whatever you're going to do and, and just, you know, probably do it better than anybody else. Yeah. I agree with you there. Well, it's, it sounds too like the success that you had with Rooster and then um, at Framerate, a lot of it seems like you were just really in touch with the community, that you had your finger on the pulse of what gamers wanted. With the influencer model at Rooster, was that something that you saw replicated elsewhere before or you just knew that that was the way to get gamers playing the game? It was something we thought about. Like, how, you know, how can we... We knew that YouTube influencers had a big impact, yeah. right? In terms of what people wanted to play. And I think the question was really, there had never really been a mechanism though to, to do deals with them based on performance and actually based on their, their installs. So, mm. you know, I was just, you know, you know, the, the user, the paid user acquisition game in mobile is great. If your name is, you know, Facebook or Google for everybody else, it's, it's, nothing, sure. it's, it's only something where it gets more and more expensive all the time. Right. So like, you know, it's not, it's not really, you know, you know, a, a business that, you want to be in, right? So we just looked at it. And what I've done over my career from an entrepreneurial perspective, yeah, for with every company that I've started, is I've always tried to look first for like a problem and trying to figure out, okay, is this a is this a real issue in this industry right now? Is this something yeah. that people need to figure out and will add value if we can come up with a solution for it? And if it is, I just go after it as hard as hell, like and try to figure it out. Right. So in yeah. that case, it was how do I do influencer marketing? but based it on performance and not just overpay, not just write a check to someone who creates a video. How can I actually right. articulate the actual value I'm getting from an influencer who makes a video about my game that I can measure, not just from an install, but all the way through the lifetime of that user and like what the value of that user is over time. Yeah. And it was, you know, we looked at it, we're like, okay, we're going to have to build this really complex platform and hire engineers and then, a friend of mine named Tim O'Neill um, from San Francisco, who's a very smart mobile executive, said, "Why don't you just license this? You know, white label this product that called has offers that Tune had available, which we did that for eight hundred bucks a month, and we turned that into our software platform. So that oh, was wow. an entire engineering feat until until maybe six months down the road, I hired a guy named Dylan Tai, who happens to be a, the head engineer for <laughs> Juked right now. I'm sure you're familiar with Juked." Yep. The esports platform. Dalen is over there now, but Dalen came on to work with me and he helped us polish it up. He helped us turn it into, you know, we built on top of that, but we recognized like this was something that people needed, right? And we recognized yeah. that. I think the second game we put on the marketplace was Angry Birds 2. And we had, you know, 50 YouTubers sign up to make videos for the game overnight. Oh. And we, I think, ran through the budget for that title in less than 24 hours to like drive installs for it. But you know, it was very effective. And, and that's just something I've looked for time after time, whenever I start a company is, okay, is this an actual problem that needs to be solved that, that, that doesn't exist just yet? And if there is, there's a good chance you can build a company around it. 
Yeah, I interviewed somebody the other day, Susan Paley. She's a former CEO of Beats by Dre. Now she's with Drop Labs, a haptic technology shoe company. And she was sharing how, because there's so many startups nowadays, especially in tech, you, you kind of, a lot of times, have companies that are built to solve solutions and then they go search for a problem. But the way things should be and the most effective startups and companies are they find a problem and they solve that. Have you experienced both sides of that equation? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen, definitely have seen both sides of the equation. You know, people, they approach in different ways, right? So I guess it's just a matter of what they, you know, what, what they think is a good fit. Yeah. So with the, with the influencers, so you're switching to, obviously, the pay being based on their performance. Did you get any pushback originally? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so originally, because they're used to getting flat fees, you know, we, some of the first influencers we had, I knew it would work really well just being a mobile game publisher. And a few of the guys at first said, you know, you've got to guarantee me I'm going to make at least $500 from this video. Like, right. I have to make at least 500 bucks for this. And I said, you can, you're going to do this video and you're going to make, fi- make $5,000. So don't worry, even worry about it, right? So yeah. I'd make them a, I would give them a minimum guarantee um, to make the video and they would make the video and they would generally earn close to 10x like what they thought they were going to get, right? So as soon as right. they did that, the, the whole goal with Rooster was really to get the, the, the better creators to do the first video and once they saw what they could do with the video, they would go in and sign up for multiple offers, right? Because yeah. at the time, I think YouTube CPMs on advertising were only something like at the back then, I think it was even like maybe like six, seven bucks at the okay. most they're getting. And we average on on Rooster, we were averaging like $120 CPMs. Oh right, wow. For, yeah. For YouTubers. So it was a no-brainer. And, you know, like I said, it worked really, really well. And it was, you know, kind of gave birth to a number of other companies that were very comparable and, and have kind of tried to replicate the model. I don't think anybody's ever really done it as well as we did it with Rooster, but yeah. um, there've been, you know, FameBit was one, but FameBit was focused on all different types of content creators. Okay. With Rooster, we were very specifically focused only on gaming influencers, nobody else. Got it. Right. So you knew when you came to Rooster, you were going to get a gaming focused content channel. You know, I mean, gaming was a big enough sector at that time to do that. That I didn't need to go after, you know, you know, food and beverage and cosmetics or anything else. I could just focus on gaming and build a company around it. Yeah, in fact, I remember when I was at GameStop, we were looking at our influencer strategy. This was a number of years ago, but I think eight of the top ten influencers were gaming influencers. So you kind of have the bulk yeah. there, just because it, it, from a content standpoint, the way it's consumed, it just works so organically. Yeah, it works really well. And it sounds like too with that, the performance space, it's kind of like when you proposition an employee for whether it be like hourly versus commission. I, long time ago when I was in college, I worked at Sears for like three months selling refrigerators and nobody buys refrigerators in the fall is what I found out. That's when I was working there. But there was this one girl who worked in the, the electronics department who decided who like they gave everybody the option hourly or commission. And there's this one employee who opted for a commission and she crushed it like crazy. And of course, she's the type of person that would do well with that. But to bring that back to your experience here, not only are these these influencers going to find out they're going to make more money, but you're going to get higher quality influencers because they're confident in their performance rather than, no, nah, I'm just comfortable with the flat fee. I probably wouldn't trust that influencer nearly as much. Yeah. We never forced an influencer to make a video. We never told them what to say. 
we gave all creative control to them. And generally they, they would, you know, they had the option. Like if they didn't like the game, they didn't have to make a video. If they liked the game, they can make the video. Right. So right. it was really, you know, we, we developed a lot of enemies in that business because a lot of the MCNs back then, like, you know, some of the bigger multi-channel networks did not like what we were doing because yeah. they looked at it as cutting them out of the picture, which we did. And I was happy to do that. Because um, a lot of those MCNs were not adding value to 90% of the content creators under their banner. They were just kind of like, you know, taking value. So we kind of enjoyed the fact that, you know, we, we gave creators an ability to, to earn what they keep and not have to share it with somebody else. That wasn't really bringing deals to them anyway. Right. Makes sense. So similarly with Framerate, once again, you have your figure on the pulse of what gamers are, gamers are looking for from a content perspective. What kind of helped inform that decision or the type of content you did there? Was that your experience? Was that people you were associated with or, or something else? No, I mean, I mean, honestly, this is a good, I mean, this is probably another good example of a business story for, for people that are interested in this kind of stuff is, yeah. you know, when we started off, we thought we wanted to create a lot of well-produced content, right? Shows, original content you know, stuff that requires a lot of dollars and, and post-production and pre-production time. Yeah. Um, and we started doing that, right? We made shows in New York City. We were shooting stuff in Central Park. We were we were producing a number of different things. We were shooting stuff at Barstool. And then what we, you know, and then, but what we also did was we had a show called Recreal and Recreal was nothing but just the best highlights in that week, all blended into one reel with music. Yeah. And we looked at it and Recreal was doing 10 times the views, 10 times the engagement, then all these other shows were cost. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, highlights are created every day all over the world by gamers everywhere. They love to get featured. They love yeah. to get the growth on their social channels from getting identified. And we found that those those videos, those highlight videos did really, really well. It's probably the most engaging content you can put in front of gamers. And it was funny because this was this it was an early stage startup. We raised, you know, less than a million dollars to build that company. And the, the truth was we were running out of money, right? So we were yeah. running out of cash. And, you know, as the end of that, as the end of, I think, 2018 wound down, we, you know, we recognized, wow, the thing that we spent most of our money and time on, which is building original content, doesn't perform anywhere near as well as just highlights and clips and really great plays. Yeah, Let's focus on that and let's focus less on spending money to, to produce content, Right. Let's just focus on giving people what they want to watch. Yeah. And as soon as we started to do that, we started to see a huge spike in viewership, right? Growth, viewership, scale, minutes watched, everything. But as a business, at the same time, we were we literally were running out of money. And then in December of that year, we actually did run out of money, right? So frame rate technically was like kaput. It was over. I had to lay people off. How big was the team at that point? At that time, it was probably like maybe four or five people total, yeah. right? It still wasn't a huge team, but no matter if your team is big or small as a founder, like, you know, that moment when you realize like it's over, it's it's hard because you people are going to lose their jobs and you're thinking to yourself, what have I done? You know, I put all sure. my time and effort and, and savings into this, but it just, you know, it was at a point where we started to see great growth, but we ran out of cash and I let people go. I saw, I sat down and I started to think about like, what am I going to do for work? I'm going to go and find a job now. Holy shit. Right. Um, so I started to think that, and then I just, you know, I woke up, I think the next morning and the morning after that, I think we were offline for maybe two days. We stopped, we didn't put any content out. Okay. And I just woke up and was like, you know what? 
there's absolutely no friggin' way that we're going to like give up on this right now. Just when we see the light, we turn the corner, we figure it out, just run out of money. So I got, yeah. I got on the phone with an investor that I had. I went out to Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah. And I sat down with three personal injury attorneys who were probably all 75 plus. They probably knew nothing about gaming. And I just said to each of them, that I said, listen, we've, we've, we've figured something out here and we know what we're doing. I need you guys to all do a small investment in this company as a safe note, you know, and we're going to give you a, a reasonable guarantee return on your money. But we just, we need a little bit of more runway to, to make this work. Right. And um, whatever I said resonated, they all wrote me checks that day on the spot. Wow. All of them. Went, went back to Boston, deposited the checks. I hired back my social media manager at that time, a guy named Mike Bitten. Mike came back and I just told him, I said, you know, you know, this is working. We got to make it happen. We can't give up. And, you know, Mike was willing to come back and, and kind of work for me. And, and I didn't take a salary for a while. And this is probably like, again, like, you know, and, you know, early January now. Yeah. And we just kept doing what we were doing, right? With a team of two. And, you know, about three, three and a half months later, as we continue to grow and get really, really big, you know, I was approached by Super League Gaming, who saw what we were doing. And I think recognized the value of that audience and those channels. And, you know, they, they came down with, you know, what I thought at the time was they wanted to advertise with us. And, they ended up, you know, making us an offer to uh, acquire the company. Um, wow. Incredible. So, <laughs> that's quite yeah, a, so, that's quite an up and down. That's the real life of an entrepreneur right there. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's literally, you know, into the depths of uh, the jaws of hell, whatever it is and, and shut down and, and kind of reach back in and bring it back to life and just keep believing in what you're building and, and seeing the growth. And, you know, if you build something valuable, you know, there are going to be people that are going to be interested in, in being involved with that. Yeah, I think that speaks too to the importance of uh, your passion as well, right? Like you were talking about at the beginning of this episode is, you know, you weren't willing to let that go, even though you had ran out of money, you, you, you did, you went the extra mile because you believed in this thing so much more than just from a financial aspect, it sounds like. And had you not been yeah. super passionate about it, probably would have said, ah, this thing's not making any money. I got to go find the next thing, right? I mean, look, the honest truth is you have to be a little bit crazy too, like to take it as far as I took it, like, yeah. and to keep doing it. Most people, most rational people probably would have bailed before I, you know, before completely running out of money. Sure. But we literally continued to try to raise, we believed in what we were doing until the point when it wasn't possible anymore. And then I just had to kind of wake myself up and turn it around and, and to get us a lifeline, which I was able to do. Yeah. And you know, it's good because you never want to see your investors lose money. You never, I've never had an investor lose money in one of my companies. So, you know, you, you want to step up both for yourself and for them, right. To show yeah. them that like the, there's validation in what, what you told them, what you believed in. So, you know, we went out and we did that and, you know, we, we kept growing the company and we kept um, doing what we did and we allowed brands to work with us and those highlights turn them into, uh, ad, you know, like, like assets really to kind of reach users and gamers or with content. So it was a great experience, really cool, a great company to, to sell to in Super League and, you know, and brought it over there and helped them where they continue to run it to this day. Right. So. Right. That's incredible. I want to talk a little bit about Xset, but before I get there, you've had wins and you've had, I don't know if losses is the right way to put it, but for the entrepreneurs that are listening to this episode, what would you say when you're if somebody's in that point where they don't know if they should keep going or, or you know, they're in the, the valley much more than the peak, you know, what has helped you 
to continue persevering and, and keep going at it when it seems like what you're trying isn't working or, or you're not sure if, if you're going to stay in business? I think one of the most important things you need to do, and I do uh, for myself as well, is you have to have a plan. Like you can't get into a business and just say, I'm going to keep trying to make this happen and spend two, three, four, five years toiling with no success and no exit strategy, right? At all. Like you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to build this business. And in one year, it's going to be doing this or I'm out. Like it's going to be, we're going to have an inflection point of, of this capability within this time frame, or I'm going to pull the plug because nobody likes to kill their own babies, right? Like, right. you know, the, the hallways are scattered with, with, you know, you know, babies that people just did not want to give up on and they're still straggling. But you really have to have a plan about what you're trying to build. You have to be strategic about how big it's going to be. Is it something that you believe is a real problem that's being solved? And more importantly, are there companies out there that may be bigger than you that have resources and also agree that that's probably a problem that you could, you know, present nicely for, right? So, right. You got to have a plan um, in place. You got to keep moving the ball forward. And I think the most important thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about or sleep on is you have to have some type of strategy around monetizing what you're doing and creating revenue and running a sustainable business. You can't just yeah. build an idea and think people are going to come. You've got to build a business. Otherwise, it's it, there's no point to it. And that goes for everything from Rooster to Frame Rate to Exit, right? In terms of how we run this organization. So you got to have a plan. It's got to be a business. You got to create a product and you got to, you know, fulfill a need or, or, or solve a problem. And you have to work really hard to do that. So if you do all those things, you have like a 5% chance of success. So again, <laughs> it's not something that generally a rational person is going to want to go and do, Right. but I just can't seem to keep a day job. So what would you say that it is? I, I've I've experienced entrepreneurship the last about six months starting my own company, and it's 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 one of those things that I think you know I can't speak to it like some veteran, of course, but it's the type of thing once you do take that step, you do experience some things that are unique: the the freedom, the the opportunity, not just freedom with your time as far as okay, I can work at night rather than you know go pick up my kid from school at two o'clock or whatever. But also freedom with ideas. That's what gets me excited. It's like, wow, I can really do anything I want. Obviously, I have to make it viable for the market and everything. But there's nobody telling me what to do necessarily. What are the things as an entrepreneur that can't seem to take a day job, as you said, that is so attractive about entrepreneurship? You know, for me, I mean, it's really about the ability to take an idea and build a company around it. That that's always been a, a very appealing personal motivator for me. Is is the idea of taking a, a name or an idea or a brand or a vision for what if we built this and actually taking that idea because a lot of ide- a lot of people have ideas, right? Sure. So, but taking that idea and exec- executing on that idea as a business uh, and growing it and seeing it come to life and and seeing it scale is a really wonderful thing, right? Like, like, you know, when we started Exit, we had four people and now we're up to almost, you know, 55. Yeah. You know, between all of our talent and our players and, and our people internally. And, you you know, and these people are passionate about their career now. Like, they love Exit. They love working at the organization. Like, you know, we love that, you know, having them here. The players are, we're, you know, a good relationship with. But, you know, taking an idea and really building it into something real and innovative and being a thought leader is, is a really cool thing to be able to do. Yeah. And it's how I choose to spend my time. Cool. So tell us about this idea that's now a business called Exit. 
what brought that? How is this different than what we've seen some of the other orgs yeah. are seen in the esports industry so far? Yeah. So, I mean, at the time, honestly, this is probably like end of 2019, early 2020. I had decided that I wanted to move on, I think, from Super League and that I, I was really interested in, you know, being a lifelong gamer and an esports fan. I wanted to look at an opportunity at, you know, owning or investing in a team, right? So I actually went down a road pre-exit of, of looking at acquiring another organization out there on, on the West Coast that was uh, potentially for sale, put an ownership group together. I was a part of that, a small part of that ownership group, put an offer in on the team that we felt like was a good offer. And, you know, we're supposed to be hearing back, I think, from the owners that day and, and ended up being told that they were going to go to a different offer. That was actually a less offer, which was a little mind-boggling to us at the time, but it is what it is. And I think, you know, I was out in California that week and two days later, I actually went to go see a good friend of mine, this guy, Greg Selko. Greg and I, obviously partners now, Greg was president of FaZe for about three years. Yep. Greg and I go back about 20 years in Boston. He was the founder of Karma Loop, good entrepreneur. You know, I thought the type of person that I like to work with that has the guts and has the capability to build something very valuable. Right. Sure. And Carl yeah. was, you know, did over a billion lifetime revenue as a big company. Well, and I, you know, I saw Greg out in LA and, and I knew him from Boston and I knew his family was here. I used to bartend with his wife. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I said, you know, you know, and that's where we kind of I said to him, I said, look, everything in esports right now is, is stuck in a Southern California culture bubble. It kind of looks and feels the same. All the organizations are kind of doing the same thing for better or worse. Yeah. You know, we're East Coast guys. No one's doing anything on the East Coast of consequence in this space. Nobody's tapping into, you know, East Coast mentalities, New York, Boston, Philly, Miami, Atlanta. No one is tapping really into hip hop and music and 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 culture and urban urban culture yeah. the way we could and the way we knew that we should. And we realized that, you know, today's gamer is a much different gamer than it was five or ten years ago. It's much more diverse much more inclusive, much younger. They want different things from an organization that I think a lot of players that fans said, you know, a couple of years ago that they want to be more social. They wanted to, you know, cross over into the merchandise they wear. They want to see their favorite highlights on TikTok. They want to cheer for their favorite teams and go to live events. And, and they want to do a lot of things that we felt like a lot of worries weren't really delivering on. But most importantly, we really felt like gaming needed to get more diverse. It needed to get more inclusive. It needed to really represent a lot of different people and we were the ones that were going to try to make that happen That's and that cool. was really a, a core fundamental uh starting point for us with exit was to we were going to build something different and greg agreed to do it and then clinton and will came along you know also from phase and you know we launched the organization in july of last year and it's been you know seven months of just you know nonstop trying to to, to prove our point and to get to where we want to be yeah and it's been exciting you know, it's been, a, it's been a great time so far. Well, it seems like you guys are doing a great job. It's it's like nothing but announcements over the last seven months is kind of what it seems like. And today, the day of this recording, there's an announcement that HyperX joined you guys as a partner, which congratulations. It seems like a perfect fit too. All they do from an entertainment perspective, I know they do a lot with traditional sports athletes, with musicians, and also, of course, with gamers. Uh, talk a little bit about competition versus entertainment from an org's perspective. I'm curious if you have a take on that. Yeah. So, so a couple things. I mean, I always feel like gaming in general at the highest level is entertainment, right? I mean, that's yeah. ultimately gaming is about entertainment. Gaming is more to me, WWE than the NFL, 
right? Yeah. It, it's much more about being entertaining, being fun, can be com- definitely can be competitive, no doubt. But it really is an entertainment focused, you know, like space versus just being strictly competitive, right? So, right. so for, for us at Exet, Exet as a whole, as a brand, as an organization is really, when we talk about it internally, it's more of a movement. It's more about getting people culturally feeling that this is something they want to be a part of. This is something they can support. We have nine competitive esports teams at Exet, right? With everything yeah. from, you know, our Valorant team, which has been performing really, really well. We, we're really proud of those guys. To our Rocket League team, to our competitive Fortnite team, to our Warzone players. We have some of the best in North America for Warzone. Yeah, We have one of the best Madden players in joke. We've got the... You know, three-time world champ women's CSGO team, which is actually the, the highest, you know, most winning women's esports team in history. Cool. We have mobile gaming covered. And then we have one new title we're getting into that we'll be announcing in a few weeks that we're really excited about as well. And then we just recently got into eNASCAR and iRacing, which was the first race was last night. And that is absolutely a space that's about to explode right now. If you haven't watched it yet, yeah. I highly recommend you check it out. Definitely. So we have, we have competitive, but what we also have is obviously we have content creation, we have streamers. We have a number of professional athletes that what we call two-way athletes or like the Bo Jackson to Michael Jordan to the world from back in the day. Like yep. they're a professional athlete, but they also take their gaming and the streaming really seriously. Mm. So, you know, we brought on several of those, both as investors and partners to be a part of Xset, to represent Xset, you know, and, and you know, so we have, we have those. And then we have really kind of some of our unique personalities, people like Minestes, who's a 14-year-old Olympic skateboarder, amazing role model, just absolute rock star. Yeah. We've got, you know, we've got US Olympic uh, rugby players. We just added a NASCAR race car driver, Anthony Alfredo. We have recording artists, like obviously like guys like Sway Lee and some other ones that we're going to be announcing pretty soon. But the underlying current is always passionate about gaming and loving games, right? And like yeah. wanting to be playing games, creating, you know, content, streaming, understanding that, you know, these days there's basically three things that kids do. They, they play games, they watch other people play games or they watch Netflix, right? So <laughs> yeah, we just, you know, we want to be a big part of that ecosystem. So we want people either watching our teams, you know, playing games with our content creators or streamers. You know, we have sub games all the time, watching content that we produce or we create, you know, and, and just really, you know, feeling like this is a, this is a place where maybe they can identify with people on our roster. They can identify people in our company. They feel like there's a diverse, you know, you know, roster of talent that that represents who they are, right? And, yeah. and how they feel. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's all really important stuff for us. And we, we're really excited about what we're building. HyperX is a great partner. You know, culturally, they're the perfect fit for us. I mean, they're doing a lot of this stuff as well. Yeah. Over there, they've, you know, with everything from Post Malone to Joel Embiid, like they're very culturally savvy and understand what 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 gamers are all about we feel the same way so we think we're gonna do some really cool stuff together yeah i think one thing that's kind of the theme that's going to be 2021 is the mainstreaming of gaming and culture it was really cool watching the super bowl looking on my twitter feed and seeing all these people i know say i was on a super bowl commercial for the first time you know and saw it with some skateboarders as well as some some gamers but talk a little bit about how you see the future of gaming and interacting with broader culture. Yeah. So, I mean, gaming, again, like it's, it has expanded now to the point where it's, you know, easily, you could, it's easily the largest consumer segment, 
right, and market out there. I mean, almost everybody under 30 games in some way, shape, or form, right? right? So I think a lot of this is really about understanding and capturing and building a relationship with this, you know, this demographic versus, you know, trying to appeal to people that might not be interested in gaming, right? So, so for us, I mean, you know, gaming is prevalent in music culture. Every musician that we know that we work with plays video games in some way, shape or form, Yep. you know, recording artists, movie stars, you know, people, celebrities, everybody games, right? I game, yep. you game, like, I mean, it's, it's something that really almost everyone does at this point. And then it's really about collectively bringing them together, you know, and helping and helping people understand like, this is, this is a common thread. So if you want to watch content at Xset or play games with people from Xset or watch our teams play, you can do that. You can rep the merchandise. You can do really whatever you want to do. And you can be a part of something. Like you don't have to just be signed by us to be a part of Xset. Anybody who's an Xset or reps a set is, is a part of Xset, right? So, yeah. you know, the kids that send us, you know, photos from the jerseys that they've bought, like, you know, it, it's a very powerful movement that we're trying to build organically and over time. But, you know, we really feel like this is really the new face of gaming and it's kind of what we're doing. And, you know, again, for brands and from a business perspective, you know, if you were trying to reach this 30 and under demographic, this diverse uh, multicultural demographic, you know, you, you need to do that in a way that's, or, that's real and, and authentic. So, you know, I think we provide that as well. But culturally, gaming is, you know, is a part of everything we do from... You know, examples like virtual concerts at, you know, in Fortnite now that are grossing anywhere from 10 to 20 million dollars. I promise you, like, that's a lot easier to pull off than, you know, an entire tour an artist might do with 16 stops. It doesn't gross anywhere near as much money. So people, people in those industries are watching that, you know, Twitch streamers today are the new TV stars. So instead of an entire TV production, you've got a Mr. Beast, you've got a, a, a top tier streamer who can carry and command an audience of, you know, we have one of our streamers, Hannah is one of the most famous Minecraft streamers out there. Yeah. You know, she averages over a million minutes watched per day by herself. <laughs> um, streaming, right? So understanding what new media looks like is a really, really important thing. And, you know, we have, we, we understand that. And we understand that like in a lot of ways, we're a media company, but in a lot of ways, we're a social network, right? It changes. So, yeah, you know, just, I think what's also important is making sure that you touch every game that's relevant you know, talking about games like Minecraft, Minecraft is still the top game on YouTube. Yeah, It's still one of the most watched titles. You know, one of the creators we work with has built up a TikTok following of 3 million in a very short period of time, strictly with Minecraft content. So whether it's Minecraft all the way to, to the harder core stuff like Valor, like you've got to touch everybody. NASCAR, like being in NASCAR. Now Xset is a brand that people in NASCAR know about, right? So right. it's really about you know, there are gamers in NASCAR. I bet you, uh, you know, a good 20, 25%, if not more of NASCAR fans are, are probably gamers, right? Younger Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we want to make sure that, that Xset is a brand and a company is involved in front of all those people. How do you guys balance being everywhere you need to be, but also being nimble so that you can jump in and out of games? You know, Fall Guys was like the biggest thing for like three weeks <laughs> this summer. Yeah. And then Among Us, you know, how long is Among Us going to be around? What is kind of your strategy around that? So a couple things. One, I mean, I've worked in everything from game development and design early on to well, to the marketing, to the partnerships, to the sponsored content, to esports and competitive gaming. I mean, the one thing with gaming that is a constant, I think, is that the games that people play will always change and you need to be prepared as a company to 
to seize on those opportunities and to yes. be able to move very quickly. We have not, you know, to date written any, you know, eight figure checks that really kind of tie us as a business to a particular title. You know, we yeah. participate in many of the games that have open leagues, games that are, are, are growing or, you know, have leagues that we have been able to get into in ways that make good business sense for us. Leagues like Rocket League, for example. Sure. You know, that allows us to compete in top fast growing esports and also are, 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 you know, from a business perspective, makes sense. Yeah. You know, Fortnite, we, you know, we continue to do that. So, you know, we're not going to make any overly aggressive bets, but, you know, we'll definitely look at games on a case by case basis. But I promise you, like, you know, what, what people are playing two years from now, three years from now is going to be very different than what people are playing right now. There's not too many League of Legends or, you know, CSGOs out there in the world. I and mean, those, those games, you know, are, are unique, right? So right. you really have to be able to appeal to that, whether it's mobile gaming or whether it's, you know, P- P- PC, more traditional focused stuff that like you got to look for. I agree. Yeah, I think one of those bigger differences is this year was the 101st year of the NFL. <laughs> League of Legends has been around 11 years. Yeah, something like that and so it's you always got to have your fingers on the pulse well i feel like i could talk to you forever there's a lot that i'd love to learn from i think our audience learned a lot today i I certainly did is there anything that you'd love to plug or give us a tease to have an eye out for in the near future here probably a lot of things (laughs) i could say this much i mean we've been busy in the first seven months but the next seven months make the first seven months look like you know, a walk in the park. We've got some really exciting announcements around some, you know, some professional gamers, some partners that we're going to be bringing into esports that have not yet been in the space. Cool. Um, and then we're going to really further push, I think, the collaborations between music and gaming. Yeah. With some of the things that we have planned for this year, and you know, we're and we're excited about that, right? So I think that I would just keep an eye on Xset and make sure you're following us and and, and you see what we're up, what we're up to, and what we're about. And you know, there's always a place at the organization for, for people that feel like this is what they're all about as well. And some, some good stuff coming down the pipe. Cool. Well, well, we'll definitely be watching next set. Can't wait to see what happens next. Marco Maru, thank you so much for your time. You're a busy guy. We appreciate you being here on the DLC Drop podcast today. Dude, thank you so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futurai podcast network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.